0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Colorado, housing prices soar while traffic crawls. So why is Governor John Hickenlooper so focused on recruiting companies and people to the state? With Metro Denver landing a big new headquarters, that's where we began our regular conversation at the state capitol. Governor, thank you for joining us again. Glad to be back. I want to get to some economic development news. On Monday... A major outdoor company announced it's moving its headquarters to Colorado. This is VF Corp. I imagine a lot of people did not know what VF Corp was before this, but it's the parent of brands, including North Face. VF plans to move 800 jobs to Colorado starting next year. It'll get up to $27 million in state tax incentives. But this deal has made some folks in northwestern Colorado really unhappy because one of VF's companies, Smartwool, is already in Steamboat Springs. And under this plan, Smartwool and 70 jobs move to Denver. So here's what Route County's economic development director just wrote to us. The governor and his administration talk about spreading the wealth and supporting rural Colorado, but families in Route County are reeling from this news as their jobs and livelihoods are up in the air. What's your response to that? Well, first, you've got, you got to understand that
1: VF Corporation was looking at reconsolidating, moving their headquarters somewhere. So we were in a very competitive battle with Portland, Oregon. So those jobs could have come to Denver or they could have gone to Portland, Oregon. They were not going to stay in Steamboat Springs.
0: You know that for a fact. I know that for a fact. They we're not staying there.
1: We, we certainly encouraged their executives to keep those jobs there, at numerous points during the process, Luis Benitez, who's our director of outdoor recreation, has been out already before we announced to Steamboat, to see all right, what else can be done. We weren't able to persuade them to keep the jobs out there. So the whole reason they're doing this move is to get all their different brands together in one place, which, you know, you can see the business purpose of that. What emerged from that trip to Steamboat? Any ideas about how you might replace some of those jobs? Well, I think Louis has, he's going to go back out, uh, and certainly Stephanie Copeland, who runs our Office of Economic Development, has uh, ideas as well. When some, When a smaller community like Steamboat loses a large package of jobs, what can the state do to rebuild that? And we're certainly going to look at every opportunity. We, we recognize they're going through a hard time, but they can't blame Denver, right? They, and they shouldn't blame the state for making sure those jobs at least stayed in Colorado. They were going to leave Steamboat no matter what. The company had made a, a decision. The better way to look at it, if I was in Steamboat, I think VF Corporation is going to attract dozens and dozens more businesses. And a lot of them aren't going to want to be in the big city, but they're going to want to be somewhere close. And I think those are the kinds of businesses that are more likely to go to Steamboat or Grand Junction or Ridgeway or wherever. The outdoor recreation industry favors rural parts of states.
0: We're seeing some of that in Grand Junction these days. Yeah. And I think Montrose.
1: I mean, this is a 32 billion dollar market value company. This is going to be the largest market value
0: company uh, in terms of an operating company that we have in Colorado. That's a big deal. The VF deal isn't the only way that your administration is trying to grow the economy. Uh, The state is partnering with the tech industry for a half-million-dollar campaign to recruit California workers. It's called Pivot to Colorado. And they've placed billboards in Bay Area subways, saying things like, hack your career, innovation and elevation, <laughs> and time to reboot. <laughs> People who go to the website to sign up for more information see a headline that says, this is a poaching strategy.
1: <laughs> Why
0: that campaign?
1: You know, right now, if you're lucky enough to live in a, in a city or a state where you have rapidly growing technology companies, pretty much everybody is short employees our cost of living is way less than Silicon Valley. I mean, way less. And I think that that's the strategy here. And I love it when the, when the tech companies use humor and get a little edgy. We're not the only city that's done this, right? And, and the, the industry's put up most of the money. I think the original four hundred fifty grand
0: came from the industry itself. So you're saying that there's opportunity for Colorado in the high cost of living in California. And yet I think there will be people who hear that and say, you are merely bringing the high cost of living to Colorado? I mean, uh, the housing supply here is at a record low, prices at a record high. Voters are going to be asked to raise taxes for roads and schools, even as Colorado's economy is one of the healthiest in the country. Why reach out and recruit more people? A, hey, you're making a mountain out of molehill with all respect. This, we're
1: talking maybe They'll get a dozen or a couple dozen employees out of this. Wait, wait. wait. Not- you,
0: you just talked about <clears throat> what a big deal the VF relocation is. Well, that and is a big I'm, deal. I'm making the mountain out of the no, molehill.
1: You, no, you, yeah, you changed the subject, and you're talking about this pivot Colorado. I'm talking that about the, is the, you, that the is whole the mountain. idea. That is the mountain you're trying to make out of molehill. So if you're talking about that, I'll answer that. And that is a few number of employees, at a small group of tech companies, they want to be able to compete and get certain types of key employees that aren't in our normal group. And that is not a big deal in terms of if you're worried. About, if you're anti-growth people. Some people, I hear them too. They say, we've grown too fast. We, we, we don't want to grow anymore. Hey, I was here
0: in the 1980s. I got laid off in 1986.
1: That recession lasted nine years
0: here. Is it fair at, to at, say anti-growth, though, or is it just smart growth or different growth or thoughtful growth? I think what we're doing is thoughtful growth. We're, we're trying to grow
1: and make sure that we don't, Slow down or put on the brakes because once you do that, it's very very hard to get the momentum back. Wiser is to, as you grow, invest your in your infrastructure so that you can grow without having these extremes of congestion. If you look at Metro Denver, and I think in other ways this is true around Colorado, but certainly in Metro Denver, we invested in fast tracks. We don't have the same congestion that they have in San Francisco or Seattle or fast Los Angeles. Tracks is light rail? Yeah, the light uh, rail out to the suburbs, and as that builds out and around more of these stations you get more housing, we will be able to accommodate more growth with less congestion. So that being said, you know, the, we're still going to have
0: to invest in affordable housing. I don't deny that. doesn't mean you want to stop growing. On the subject of transportation, uh, you've said that you back the idea of a new tax for roads, and indeed the Denver Chamber of Commerce has submitted petitions for a 20-year, $6 billion tax increase. Will you actively campaign for that? Yeah, I think I'll go out and
1: and try to make sure people understand the facts around it. The voters do get the final word. Part of having that final word is is for me to make sure that we get the real facts out there. Yes, so I I do think I will go out. And and I say, you know, I think it's a good idea.
0: Another tax has already been approved for the ballot. It would raise $1.6 billion for education. Colorado voters have historically not approved statewide tax increases. Now there could be two on the same ballot. I wonder if you're at all worried about voter fatigue. Like, will people just decide, eh, none of the above? It's possible, but
1: I think Colorado voters care about really seeing, here's the taxes I'm going to be paying, and what do I get for it? And is that something I care about? And, you know, making sure that our teachers are properly paid, that we have the, the right-sized classrooms, that we're able to continue to, and expand the funding we have for kids that don't go on to college to make sure that the, there's more vocational training.
0: That would be envisioned in this tax? Yeah. And why don't we stick to the subject of the ballot? Because there are two major proposals related to oil and gas coming from distinctly different points of view. Uh, they await clearance from the Secretary of State to be on the ballot. The first is Initiative 108. It would require governments to compensate property owners if the value of their property drops because of a law or regulation, uh, supporters say people's property values shouldn't be damaged if, for instance, a local government limits oil and gas development. Where do you stand on this? Well,
1: we've had a couple long meetings with the Colorado Municipal League, and they're, they're the group that represents all the towns and cities in the entire state. And I have never seen them so worked up about a specific issue. And they really believe, and, and I think I'm, I'm led to side with them, that this would fundamentally weaken their ability just to, to do the basic functions of government. And beyond I, oil and gas regulation. Oh, completely. This, this goes way beyond. I mean, this is a, a very broad-reaching piece of, of constitutional change that would, I think, would wreak havoc. So I, I think I'm, you know my, my inclination is to come out and say, no,
0: this is not a good idea. And yet virtually every month that we've spoken, Governor, you've talked about the right people have to their mineral rights. Uh-huh. And that... Uh, laws that further restrict uh, where one can drill is a taking. So isn't this in that spirit? Yeah, but it's much broader. Again, that's the problem. The other proposal would require that oil and gas wells be at least 2,500 feet from buildings. The state's current requirement is 500 feet from homes, 1,000 feet from like, big public buildings, schools, hospitals. You have consistently opposed increasing setbacks beyond where they've already been increased. Is that still the case? Yes, I think 2,500 feet would be ruled by the courts to be a
1: taking by the state of Colorado, and we would have to pay financial damages to all those leaseholders, many of them retired senior citizens.
0: I'm thinking of that Dion Warwick song, Deja Vu, right now. Deja Vu all over again? Yeah, because <laughs> uh, a few years back, you helped negotiate a deal to keep dueling oil and gas measures off the ballot. But here at the tail end of your time in office, this battle rages on. It seems like this was a nut you just weren't able to crack as
1: governor. What do you mean crack? It's not, you're talking about eggshells here. When there is a natural dynamic tension between local communities and oil and gas extraction companies, there's no absolute solution. All you can do is the state's job is to guarantee that the oil and gas industry operates at absolute safety, the maximum safety standards. Their activities are not in any way
0: jeopardizing people's health. But in that previous iteration, when there were those dueling ballot measures, uh you did play a mediating role. Could you do that? Could you have done that more
1: here? At a certain point in, in Colorado, people want to be able to
0: vote. You're hearing our regular conversation with Colorado's Governor John Hickenlooper. When we come back his response to being sued this week over religious freedom. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Lakewood Baker at the center of a U.S. Supreme Court ruling this year is in the news again. Jack Phillips is suing the governor, the state attorney general, and Colorado's Civil Rights Commission, saying Colorado has been on a crusade to crush him because officials despise what he believes. The suit came down just before our regular interview with the governor at the Capitol. Let's get back to that now. The case that reached the U.S. Supreme Court was sparked by a gay couple requesting a wedding cake. Uh, More recently, though, the lawsuit says Phillips was asked to make a cake that was blue on the outside and pink on the inside to celebrate a gender transition, and he refused. So once again, the State Civil Rights Commission thinks there's reason to investigate Phillips' lawsuit says the new investigation amounts to religious persecution. I wonder if I could get your comment.
1: I believe, and I think almost everyone in Colorado believes, in freedom of religion and freedom of expression. But just because you don't agree with someone's religion, I don't think means that you should be able to deny them service or deny them goods. That doesn't seem American. doesn't or, seem
0: Coloradan. If not their religion, maybe their homosexuality or their gender, something like that. Right, exactly. Uh, When the Supreme Court ruled in the wedding cake case, uh, known as the Masterpiece Decision, Justice Anthony Kennedy based the ruling on what he said was religious hostility by the Civil Rights Commission. Uh, Kennedy wrote, the commission's treatment of his case has some elements of a clear and impermissible hostility toward the sincere religious beliefs that motivated his objection. Uh, his being Jack Phillips. Do you think all of the people who come before the Civil Rights Commission get a fair shake? I'm not,
1: I don't have enough information to give you uh, an exact answer there, but certainly that's the goal. Obviously, the Supreme Court, it seemed to me that they were more concerned about the tone and some of the conversations of, of how the commission got to their ruling. So maybe this case will, maybe that tone is not there. Maybe the, this was a little more W- without any of the emotion. Don't artists have a right to say, I don't want to make that expression? Again, this is what the Supreme Court has to decide. But if you're making someone a, a cake, right, or, or, or you're making a bicycle, it's something that you do every day for a broad cross-section of people, right, and it's open to the public. I don't think there should be bias involved of who you choose to serve and who you don't. Should you be forced to make a cake with a swastika on it? Again, I'm not sure how that is worked out in terms of the courts. I'm not a lawyer. That's certainly not a religious belief, but it is certainly, uh, under many
0: categories, considered a hate message. All right. A different topic. In 2013, your corrections chief, Tom Clements, was killed by a former inmate. And you've established a couple of awards in his honor. Uh, this year, one of them went to a program that makes it easier for veterans to get professional licenses and credentials so that they can more quickly become architects, engineers, nurses. Uh, why did you want to highlight that work in particular? Almost every veteran made significant sacrifices
1: just while they were in the service. And I think doing everything we can to make sure that they get as fair a shot as possible at you know building a a dream that, you know, their version of the American dream. We owe it to our veterans to bend over backwards, to give them, to accelerate their success. We should be trying to do it.
0: Uh, There was talk about you making a decision this summer whether to run for president. I'm so sick of this question. I wonder if you're as sick of it as
1: I am. (laughs) Well, I don't get, I'm not as sick as I am about marijuana. Everyone, oh, um, if, if I'm talking to not somebody, from using
0: anyway. it, but from being asked by it, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'll tell you the
1: one question I'm most sick of is people asking me how is Colorado's experiment in marijuana. Um, that's the worst, but this is a close second. Okay, um, and the answer? Yeah, to, we're, we're still talking about it and, and plugging away.
0: Governor, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Democrat John Hickenlooper is Colorado's governor, and we speak regularly at the state capitol. All right, back to that lawsuit filed by Lakewood Baker Jack Phillips. Again, this new suit came after a person who's transgender asked Phillips to bake a cake celebrating her transition. CPR's Mike Lamp spoke with Phillips and Phillips lawyer Jim Campbell about the day Jack got that call and what's next for the case.
2: An attorney called me up requesting the cake pink and blue to uh, announce the gender transition, changing from one gender to another. And uh, that was a cake that we couldn't create because of the message that uh, it is. So we offered to, uh, this attorney any other cakes or any other products in our shop. but just declined to create that one because of the message that it was.
3: Yeah, the customer made it clear that this cake was to celebrate a gender transition, and that's when you felt that Correct. you couldn't accommodate. Uh, wh- you know, What if you hadn't known?
2: Um, well, I did know, and that, that's a cake that I can't create for anybody.
3: I see. And what is the particular uh, objection to transgender for somebody with your religious beliefs?
2: I believe that the Bible says that—I know the Bible says that God created male and female. And I believe that we don't get to choose that, and we don't get to change that. And I don't feel like uh, the government has a right to uh, compel me to participate in uh, creating a cake that promotes that message.
3: Well, the case went to the government, the Civil Rights Commission of Colorado. They ruled not in your favor, finding probable cause for discrimination. And now you're suing the commission and the governor. What is your argument?
2: You know, I really had no choice in this because the United States Supreme Court, in their ruling in our case, ruled that the this, this Civil Rights Commission was hostile to my faith. And the United States Supreme Court told them that they cannot be hostile to my faith. And in this case... They're ignoring my my faith and forcing me to uh, create a a cake that promotes a message that goes against the core of that faith. So I really have no choice.
3: In that previous case where a gay couple wanted a cake for their wedding, you know, that was settled. Maybe you thought that the whole issue was settled with that Supreme Court ruling. Are you surprised to be back in the middle of another court case?
2: I am, uh, especially when the court's ruling and comments to the uh, commission, you cannot be hostile to this man's faith they are showing open hostility to us. So I'm surprised that they're ignoring the United States Supreme Court ruling.
3: Now, your lawyer, Jim Campbell, is also uh, with us. Uh, How far do you expect this particular case to go?
4: Well, we're we're hopeful that the federal court will step in and will put an end to the state's efforts to harass and bully Jack.
3: The uh, Supreme Court decision on the previous case was fairly narrow. Are you hoping for something broader and maybe something that will set precedent this time?
4: We don't believe that the prior decision was narrow. In fact, we believe it's directly applicable to what's going on here. What the Supreme Court said is that the state was being hostile to Jack because it didn't like his faith. And one of the things it pointed to is the fact that the state was treating him unequally. They were punishing him for declining to create a case with messages that he couldn't in good conscience create, while allowing other cake artists to do the very same thing and not punishing them. Well, this just shows once again that the state is doing the very same thing. So we've asked the federal court to step in and, in light of what the Supreme Court said, to put a stop to this once and for all.
3: I mean, here it is, the very beginning of this particular action. Can you anticipate this also getting to the U.S. Supreme Court?
4: Uh, We hope it doesn't have to come to that. We're hopeful that the federal district court will put an end to it and that the uh, state will understand that what it's doing here is unconstitutional, just like what it did to Jack the first time around. Um, But if what it takes is to, to take this case up to the higher courts, including the Supreme Court, we're ready and willing to do
0: that. Masterpiece Cake Shop's Jack Phillips and his lawyer, Jim Campbell, speaking with CPR's Mike Lamp. Many of Denver's sidewalks are old, crumbling, and sometimes dangerous. This month, the city will start to fix them and send residents the bill. Some folks worry about the cost. Others fear Denver could lose some of its history. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports.
5: Outside of a Denver coffee shop just south of the Capitol, Jamie Lewis shows me a sidewalk.
6: The first section of the sidewalk is probably about 12 feet wide. Pretty good condition.
5: This sidewalk and all others in Denver are a big deal for Lewis. He works for the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, which advocates for improved access for people with disabilities. And Lewis himself is in a wheelchair.
6: The problem is is inconsistency. You know, you could go for six or seven blocks, and all of a sudden you run into a block that's just like there's no curb uh, cut, the sidewalk's a mess.
5: Why the inconsistency? Under Denver law, sidewalk maintenance is the responsibility of property owners. That's not just shoveling snow. Homeowners whose sidewalks are cracked, tilted, or damaged they have to fix it. But the city hasn't really enforced that policy. The result is a patchwork of mismanaged flagstone, concrete, and brick. I
6: mean, I've, I've fallen out of the chair probably three times in the last two years. And so this is a
5: safety issue. Now the city will try something new. Contracted inspectors will survey sidewalks and document hazardous conditions starting this month in and around Capitol Hill. City Councilman Paul Cashman led the working group that created the plan.
1: Once someone calls us, and says there's a pothole, we need to then get that repaired within a certain length of time, or we then become liable. And it's the same
5: thing. Kind of. When the city finds sidewalk problems, it'll notify property owners what it will cost to have the city's contractor fix it. Homeowners can choose to hire someone else or do the work themselves if they have the skills. But if things aren't fixed within 45 days of notice, the city will do the work and send the homeowner a bill. If it's not paid, a lien is put on the property.
3: I'm going to be able to do mine myself because yeah, I'm a contractor. I've done concrete work.
5: That's Philip Kano. He's a fourth-generation resident of the Mestizo Curtis Park neighborhood and runs a recording studio from his home. He stands at a booth at the Mestizo Festival, a celebration of the park's 150th birthday. Kano says his sidewalk is broken into pieces, and he expects the city will make him fix it. As a contractor, he knows how expensive the work can be. The city will offer discounts and payment plans to low-income residents, but Kano isn't convinced that will be enough.
3: I'm going to be able to make it right, but some people in the neighborhood aren't going to be able to make it right, and it's, and it's just not right.
5: More than 500 homes in the Mestizo-Curtis Park area are labeled as historic, so they've been protected from demolition or any major changes. Lots of the sidewalks are old, too, made of that rust-colored flagstone still seen in much of central Denver. The durable and extremely heavy slabs were mined from a quarry in Lyons, Colorado, and laid a sidewalk starting in the late 1800s. Kano says his sidewalk is flagstone.
3: It took man hours and muscle of people 100 years ago to put each piece down, and that's a, a memory that with every piece of concrete they put, they're going to erase the memory of what they had before
5: Kano isn't the only one who feels this way. Jeff Baker is vice president of Curtis Park Neighbors. Baker says they've asked the city to delay inspections of Mestizo Curtis Park sidewalks.
7: We just asked for a little time for us to collect data. We want to find out what's actually laid down, what the real picture is of how much Preserved flagstone is still in the neighborhood.
5: The city says it'll give homeowners different repair options and price quotes. And if flagstone is intact, saving it could be one of those options. But Baker says the city has already pulled up tons of the material to make sidewalk changes in his neighborhood.
7: We made them aware that we are going to rent a forklift as a neighborhood and we are going to salvage all of it.
5: Baker says they now have more than 100 pieces stashed away on a neighbor's property. He hopes it can be reused to replace some of the flagstone outside of lower income households that might opt for cheaper concrete work. Some people are so worried to lose the distinctive reddish rock, they're considering fighting for historic protection for the Mestizo-Curtis Park sidewalks. If that happens, that could be a big cost for some. Homeowners would have no choice but to level or replace their flagstone. Outside of the Denver coffee shop, disability rights advocate Jamie Lewis points to a stretch of flagstone. He says he doesn't really mind what the sidewalks are made of, just as long as they're in good condition. Lewis says he's excited for the city's work to come.
6: There will be neighborhoods that I'll be able to visit for the first time. I mean, there are literally square blocks that either there's no curb cut or the sidewalks are in such a bad condition, I can't even go down those streets. So I don't even have access to certain communities here in Denver.
5: The city says repairs to the majority of homes will cost less than $1,000. But they admit that's an estimate. So is the amount of time they think the project will take to complete, around a decade with a current budget of $4.5 million. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News.
0: Let's take you to a yoga class in Boulder. Now, that may not sound the least bit surprising, except...
5: Here at the Boulder County Jail.
0: Yes, the Boulder County Jail, where Tracy Lundstrom works with female inmates. So the, the class,
7: the theme that I chose to bring to... You guys, today is the concept of yoga is union.
0: As long as they don't face disciplinary restrictions and aren't a threat to themselves or others, any inmate can take part. It is, says one woman, an acceptable way to escape.
5: All the outside stuff, just, I'm away from that. And it's just me, instead of me and all the outside stuff. Yeah, get away from everything. It just blocks everything else out because you're focused on that. So mentally, you're focused on that. Physically, you're focused on that and not everything going on around you.
0: Tracy Lundstrom has spent the last six years volunteering at the Boulder County Jail. Now her time there is taking on a scientific bent. Hi, Tracy. Hello. You've been teaching yoga to women both when they're in jail and after their release. That's great. And now you're doing formal research into the effects. More on that in a bit. But I'm wondering why did you decide to do this in the first place?
7: Well, um, my introduction to yoga was a very powerful introduction. Um, I actually started my first class in that room as an inmate back nine years ago. Right. Um, it was a very powerful experience that really I felt changed my life and. When I was released, I was able to connect to the woman, Nancy Candia, who taught the yoga classes. She brought me in and took me under her wing once I was released, and she gave me a scholarship to become a yoga teacher.
0: And you wanted to pay it forward in some respects. I did. You say that yoga, uh, at that instance, changed your life. Care to expound on that?
7: Um you know i I have always um, been drawn to extreme personalities, and I think that um, maybe some people may have uh, classified me as one of those extreme personalities as well and um you know it's it's often led to kind of emotions being out of control, sometimes actions being out of control and What I found through a yoga practice was an ability to really settle and root into who I was, really feel what I was feeling and be able to hold on to that no matter what was going on around me.
0: A- and not react, perhaps in ways that get you into trouble to, <laughs> yes. to those externalities, <laughs> yes, I absolutely. suppose you know this is yours to share or not. What had landed you in jail? May I ask
7: um I'd prefer not to actually okay. talk about it. It's yeah. actually something um I'm when I do share with the women at the the jail they um they usually ask me what uh-huh. happened, and I usually just let them know we're here for yoga. And uh, just as much, I'm not really interested why they're in there either.
0: But in making sure that they make better decisions in the future.
7: Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
0: How does yoga help someone who, as you describe yourself, is attracted to extreme personalities or is an extreme personality? Help us understand (laughs) that connection.
7: So there's some certain components that I try to bring to every class. Um, the first component is about connection to yourself. It's usually done with the breath and moving the body. And it's uh, what the, the young lady in the interview had mentioned. It's about getting stepping away from all of that influence on the outside, all that distraction, all of that stuff in our environment that kind of – forces us to react.
0: Right. That baits us.
7: Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, the next thing that I try to incorporate is the poses, the asana. And in that, I really spent a lot of time talking with the women about how those poses can actually feel like some uncomfortable emotions. Um, just like when we all deal with it, um, you know, I, I had to practice my calmness on my drive on the highway here. <laughs> I understand that. It's yes.
0: it's a commute I know well. <laughs> yes. And it, it baits you, in Yes, fact.
7: absolutely. And so we actually practice um, feeling that sensation and in the moment knowing that we can breathe and that the the sensation isn't going to take us over. It's not going to overwhelm us. So being able to use the yoga poses to to understand that we have some control over those emotions.
0: I remember actually at one point being in a yoga class and finding myself inexplicably in tears.
7: Mm.
0: It's like I'd released something. I wonder if that's an experience you have seen among the women in the Boulder County Jail. I have seen
7: it and I have felt it. (laughs) I think uh, most people who uh, do any kind of regular practice probably do um, experience that. And just the idea that certain parts of our bodies... um, in protection, we'll hold on to emotional states, and, um, and yoga can release that.
0: Let's get to this research you're doing. You've been gathering data on these classes and their effects for the last couple of years. <clears throat> and what yes. stands out so far?
7: So originally, uh, we used uh, archival data. We uh, used three years of data just from the class. Anonymous, we asked the women on a scale of 1 to 10, how stressed are you before the class? And then how stressed are you after? We did some statistical analysis on that. And we found that significantly, um, people were less stressed after taking uh, the yoga class. Now,
0: that's that's a nice effect. Why is it important in a jail setting, do you think?
7: Well, I think that the more stressed we are, the less ability we have to um, practice our coping skills. Um, it's kind of like fumbling for a tool bag in the dark. Um, so the more stressed that we are, the less able we are to um, to think calmly about situations. Um, so I think that's, especially in that setting, a very important uh, question Another thing that we looked at with the experimental study when I showed this to my professors at uh, Metropolitan State University of Denver, um, they said, well, this is great, but how long does it last? Hmm. Yeah. How long does – how long – are they stressed as soon as they walk back into the module? Hmm. And so we did this experimental research. And with that, we looked at some more long-term effects of stress. Um, We also looked at depression, which is something that you'll find um, higher levels of in incarcerated individuals. And what
0: are you finding preliminarily in terms of the effect, the length of the effect, and its connection to depression?
7: So um, I just want to clarify that like most uh, studies done with yoga and with um, incarcerated individuals, there's uh, a lot of noise with the population. So it's not like in a laboratory where everybody is the same thing in the Mm. same situation. And we had a very small number of people, even though we came back for two years and did this study. Um, So it's hard with the small numbers to really see a lot of that, you know, statistical significance. But uh, we did see that there was a difference For the individuals, on the week that they did yoga, their depression scores lowered significantly different uh, or more than uh, those who were not participating in yoga.
0: That is to say their depression was lessened. Correct. Okay.
7: And then, um, interestingly, we found that the stress... Went down for everyone. It didn't matter whether they were in the yoga class or uh, just participating in the study. We saw that there was a decrease in that. So that leads us to more questions, which all great yeah, research that's, does. That's <laughs> mysterious. Yeah. Well, there was, um, you know, th- th- there's a lot of th- theories that we can think about for why that may be. Um, I looked over the exit interviews and we found that the majority of the women expressed a lot of gratitude for having the opportunity to participate in the study. Many of them stated that they hoped they would help somebody else by being in the study. So maybe some of those components, whether the they did The near participation,
0: <laughs> interesting, in the study might yes. have had an effect. Yes. You know, we asked a deputy at the Boulder County Jail about what she has seen with this program. So this is Sophia Weidenfeller.
7: A lot of times they can be you know, stressed out depending on whatever court cases they come back from or whatever word they get based off their sentencing here, and it can be challenging times for them. So you can see it within just her finishing up her class.
6: They can come in upset about something, come into her class, and um, just
7: the way that she works with them, they come out, you know, a lot less stressed out and um, a lot less confrontational, just benefits them overall mood-wise.
0: I think there's a really important point there, which is that many folks who are in jail are charged uh, with something but haven't been adjudicated. So they're pre-trial. There is the stress of that chapter in their lives. Yes. So you're often connecting with them at that moment. But as we said, you offer classes for these women after they're released from jail as well. Yes. Presumably because problems don't necessarily stop uh, if and when they get out.
7: No, oftentimes people are returning to the same situations that they were in that led them there in the first place. And so what we try to do with the class is give them some skills so that they have the uh, ability to respond differently once they're back in those situations. And then the reentry component, offering it in the community, allows them to have some access to continued practice um, so that they have that support as well.
0: Now, you had to get approval for this idea. We asked Tim Oliveira, the support services commander at the jail, uh, if there was skepticism.
4: What's interesting is our jail, we've had yoga going back maybe as far as 20 years ago. We've kind of always been on that outside edge of, you know, what are you folks willing to try? What do you think might work with our inmates? What Tracy's managed to do is she's put her own spin on it. She's put her own unique um, experiences on it. And she's also been able to kind of show the effects, the impact of having yoga as a a tool for some of our inmates.
0: Is your hope to get this peer-reviewed and maybe have more programs in jails across the country?
7: Oh, absolutely. Um, We are working on a manuscript um, with my professors. So even though I've graduated, um, we are still working on that and going through all of the, the details and all of the data so that we have a clear picture to present for the peer review. Um, I would also like to, um, to see more programs, more research being done. So getting yoga teachers in other communities across the nation connected to universities and be able to do similar studies.
0: Thank you for being with us. Thank you. She is Tracy Lundstrom, yoga instructor at the Boulder County Jail. She's also studying its benefits for inmates, and her transitional yoga program has expanded to the Broomfield Detention Center. Up next, a brewery that uses its profits to keep rivers healthy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On the Western Slope, there is a conservation project that boils down to this. Drink beer, help rivers. Many Rivers Brewing makes and sells beer to raise money for river improvement projects. 100% of profits go to that cause. Tim Carlson, beer brewer and retired environmental engineer, is in our Grand Junction studio. Hi, Tim. Good morning. I understand that your interest in rivers started early, uh, when one that you swam in as a kid caught on fire. Tell me about that.
8: Oh, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting story. Well, uh, I grew up in northeast Ohio, and my grandparents had a farm, and I used to swim through a little stream and play in it. Um, you know, it seems like days on end. And in June of 69, that river caught fire. It's a Cuyahoga River, caught fire in Cleveland from... A lot of uh oil being dumped directly from refineries and and um also from steel mills and other sources and I was in my second year of college at that time in engineering and said, You know maybe this is a good area I ought to get involved in. i mean it's you know in my backyard, yeah, so that's it's, what i did it's a strange thing to think of. A river
0: catching on fire, but it's because so much of what was in the river was not water. <laughs> um, yeah. Since then, you've spent decades working on waterway improvement projects. But why continue that work now through beer? I mean, I, why not cupcakes
8: or T-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so part of it is I have been working about 45 years uh, on river systems in one form or another, trying to keep them clean. And one of the things working with nonprofits is we find, you know, we, we discovered that a biggest, the biggest problem we have in working on rivers is finding the money. And so a bunch of us, basically four of us, were sitting around a table, eating pizza, drinking beer, <laughs> saying, what could we do that could improve nonprofits' ability to access funding? And we said, why don't we do what Paul Newman does? Create a company uh, that makes a good product and then give all the profits away. Paul Newman, like he has the salad dressings. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, spaghetti sauce and so on. And we did look at a number of projects. But, you know, when you got a beer in your hand, it kind of goes, why don't we just do beer? Um, Of course,
0: a key key ingredient of beer is water. (laughs)
8: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Previously, you'd done everything from working to eradicate tamarisk on riverbanks to keeping pollutants out of water. What are some of the problems you're addressing now?
8: Well, we're working with different organizations and communities. Our goal is to connect people to the river. So, for instance, the uh, Colorado Riverfront Foundation here and. The Grand Junction area has a 30-mile trail system along the river that allows people to understand and and gain uh, further respect for the value that rivers bring to a community. They tend to be the lifeblood blood of, uh, uh, of the area. And so, I mean, that's, you know, an organization we support. We support other uh, groups um, in fundraising by providing beer to them, and beer brings people together and tends to open up their wallets. You've set up a foundation called Forever Our
0: Rivers to distribute money, and uh, so far have donated, I think, about $20,000.
8: You're also doing a partnership on a river in Arizona. Yes, we are. Two of our partners live down in the Verde Valley, uh, which is in central Arizona, and they... um. Are working with the Nature Conservancy with a farmer to convert alfalfa to uh, barley, which is used for making beer, and they were they're able to save about half the amount of water uh, being used for irrigating that crop, and also during the hot summer months, uh, where uh, barley doesn't need. Uh, water during that time period.
0: Ah, interesting. A lot of alfalfa grown in that area. Is the idea that that barley would eventually make it into your beer?
8: Uh, probably not, because there's a big demand down in Arizona for uh, malted barley. But for the farmer, he had to have a market. So our two partners down in Arizona have built a malting facility. So it's called Sanagua Malt. And so we're connecting farmer to a um, uh, uh, a market, and then that market is the craft brewers in Arizona. And it's a interesting model that could actually be replicated in Colorado. You know, we're trying to save water. Uh, it's a big part of the uh, state water plan. Now, is it
0: overstating this to say that, you know, maybe compared to alfalfa, barley is better to grow, but isn't isn't beer making a water intensive process?
8: it is a water intensive process. You typically need three to seven gallons of water to produce a gallon of beer uh, most well besides the water that goes into the beer, the other water is mostly uh, uh, cleaning water uh, you the brewing Operation needs a lot of water just to clean things. Huh. And that gets back in the river after it's treated. So it's not a consumptive use. That is to say the water can be reused. That's correct. Uh-huh.
0: I wonder the Cuyahoga is a kind of famous story of environmental cleanup, right? I mean now it's it's in much better shape after a few you
8: It's a <laughs> <laughs> it's an interest it's an interesting river because the fire um was what brought a lot of the environmental laws uh to fruition they um like the Clean water Act for instance and but nowadays that area is considered a playground uh that's where the uh up end upper end you know apartments and uh, entertainment is all happening is on the riverfront. It's a big draw, um, and it's clean. You know, it's now very clean, and and you know people flock down there. So it's been a you know it's taken fifty years to get to this point, but that's where the action is in Cleveland.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing that in so many communities really across the country that riverfronts which were once industrial and blighted and polluted are now. Uh, returning to the lifeblood of these communities. Tim, thanks for being with us. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Absolutely. That's Tim Carlson. He's founder of Many Rivers Brewing in Grand Junction. Okay, I am currently covered in mosquito bites, and so is half our staff. The other half is sitting pretty. It made us want to answer an age-old question. Are mosquitoes attracted to some people more than others? So we asked Michael Weissman, Colorado's chief entomologist.
9: There has been some research done on this, and there are some chemicals different people uh, exude you know, in their sweat and such. But the main thing that attracts mosquitoes is carbon dioxide. So if you're a heavy breather, you're more likely to get mosquitoes coming to you than someone, say, who's a little more laid back.
0: Weissman says the best ways to stave off bites haven't changed. Cover up as much skin as you can. Avoid being outside when mosquitoes are most active, so early in the morning and after sunset. But
9: the very best way to avoid getting mosquito bites is to use a repellent. Some of the best repellents have DEET in them. It's a chemical that masks the smell of the carbon dioxide you're giving off, so the mosquitoes don't know you're there.
0: Weissman says climate change means longer mosquito seasons. In Colorado, it typically runs from late April through as late as October. But before you swat one away, consider this.
9: Oh, they're beautiful if you look at them under a microscope. Their bodies are covered with scales like a butterfly, and that forms patterns of scales that we use to identify them. Black and white are most common colors, but you've got gold and yellow, silver. I've seen tropical ones that are metallic, purple and green, blue, all sorts of different colors. So it can be as pretty as a butterfly if you look at them close, but most people don't take the time to do that.
0: As pretty as a butterfly, probably not something you care about if you get West Nile virus. We're going to leave you today with music from Aretha Franklin. She died this morning of pancreatic cancer at age 76. Here's my favorite track from the Queen of Soul, her rendition of Skylark.
5: Skylark, have you anything to say to me? Won't you tell me where my love?
7: Is there a meadow in the mist Where someone's waiting to be kissed Sky-lock, Have you seen a valley green With spring
2: Where my heart Can go a journey
3: Over the shadows and the rain
7: To a blossomed covered lane And in your lonely flight Oh, haven't you heard Music in the night
0: Rest in peace, Aretha. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
7: Crazy as a moon Sad as a gypsy Serenading the moon Skylock Oh, I don't know if you can find